this COVID and the move away from, you know, some big cities does not mean the death of the city. And these are two different things. You know, a lot of people like to proclaim the death of the city. But, you know, you and I remember when this was uh, proclaimed after the financial crisis as well. But New York came back. But the, uh, the, the deeper point is that New York is not all cities. The truth is that the city always wins. You are listening to the AFR podcast. Real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. If you accept that climate change is real, and, and with events of the last few years, it's, it's difficult to believe otherwise, it's then necessary to accept that climate change directly impacts the value and therefore the investment strategies for real estate. Now, 90% of surveyed AFIRE investors believe that their climate change strategy will be more important to their success in the next three to five years. But climate change, at least to a lot of people, is a newish phenomenon. And we don't really have an abundance of, of models or even data to help guide those new climate strategies. And that's why I'm so glad to welcome um, our guest here at the uh, beginning of June in 2022, Parag Khanna. He's the founder and managing partner of FutureMap. Uh, and he's also a best-selling author of seven books, including Connectography, The Future is Asian, and uh, he has just finished a book that's published called Move, which we'll talk about a bit today. Um, and he's also developed something called Climate Alpha, which is a machine learning platform for portfolio analysis and uh, construction uh, that uses kind of climate information, property information, geographic information, and puts it through an AI machine to be able to create pretty accurate scenarios up until 2040. So pretty valuable tool he's creating. And I want to learn more about that. And we'll do that later as well. But in the meantime, uh, dialing in all the way from Singapore, um, welcome, Parag, to the AFIRE podcast. Well, thank you so much, Gunnar. Pleasure to be with you. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Parag, I just finished your book, Move. Uh, it really blew me away. And I thought that the, uh, the thesis was so strong and so important for real estate investors to pay attention to, especially those investors that cross borders and that are thinking about long-term investing as most institutions are. So you talk about how the next phase of our civilization is going to be much about an accelerated amount of migration, a massive amount of migration across the globe. Um, what do you think, based on everything that you laid out in this book, what do you think we need to prepare for and what is that going to look like? Well, that is a great place to start because it is about mass mobility. And mobility is more than just migration. You might say it's the infrastructure that supports that migration. And one of the things I noticed in the prequel to this book, Connectography, as I was doing the research for that, was just how much the volume of infrastructure is that we have invested in and built and deployed across the world and continue to. 
And I set out to answer a couple of questions. One was simply, how are we going to use all of this in the coming decades, right? Almost naively, you know, we've built all this infrastructure. The world population continues to rise, but is gradually tapering off to about, you know, it'll be probably level off around 10 billion people or less. And I wanted to answer the question, where will we live in the year 2050? And reverse engineer our utilization of our built environment, of our transportation networks, our communications networks, our energy infrastructure, and sort of say, in light of climate change, in light of um, civil wars, international conflicts, economic disruptions, technology, all of these megatrends colliding in very complex ways, where will we live in 2050? And that's how, or when you answer that question, you can also then start to answer the question, how do we prepare? Because once you know where we will be, you can start to think about how we should be living when we are there. And the first, and to me the most profound part of the revelation, is the where part. Because we have settled into very stable patterns and geographies of, of, um, of settlement over the past, say, 12,000 years since the retreat of the last ice age. And obviously, there have been very, very large scale migration since then. But if we think about, the, let's say, the last 30 years, we roughly think about people not necessarily confining themselves to their nationality, to the geography of their nationality, to their nation. Um, but roughly, we know, you know how many hundreds of millions of people are here, there, and elsewhere. But when you think about these disruptive forces, you know, especially climate change, you do come up with a forecast of a whole new map of human geography. And again, what flows from that is a whole new way of thinking about where we're going to live and how we're going to live. You know, I think it's kind of interesting. You talked a little bit in the book about how um, there's a shift in terms of how we think about ourselves. We think about ourselves as being as being a citizen of a single country versus a single person that has value, that has skills, that can migrate anywhere in the world. Um, it seems to me that, that that progress, that kind of internal progress in terms of how we see ourselves and how we become citizens of the world, has that accelerated in the last couple of years thanks to all the events that have happened with uh, the pandemic? Well, when, in the first, in the early months of the pandemic, it was characterized as the great lockdown. And indeed, never has humanity simultaneously attempted to coordinate a single act in the way that we did this so-called great lockdown. But one of the things that, especially if you were in compliance with that lockdown, one thing that we would have missed, and the data has only now emerged, that despite this so-called great lockdown, the net number of people who live outside their country of origin, who are migrants, who have moved, actually increased. And that's the latest data from the United Nations Department of Economic and Social Affairs. And even having been in the process of, of writing and actually completing the book during COVID um, about mass migrations, I even I was shocked. I actually sort of was like, my God, I thought that the lockdown initially contradicts my thesis, but it turns out the lockdown really wasn't a great lockdown. And what that proved in some ways is or reinforces the notion that we have this capacity to be mobile, to move, to relocate in response to certain stimuli, circumstances, again, disruptions, whatever the case may be. And we will act upon it even 
in the context of a great lockdown. So again, you or I may have picked one place on the map and said, well, we're just going to lay low for a year and a half or two and do our thing and switch to Zoom. But tens of millions of people continue to migrate and relocate. Sometimes migration meant going back home. Think about the construction workers from South Asia working in the Persian Gulf countries. They returned to India, Pakistan, and so forth. Um, so there was a lot of movement kind of under the radar. And it just shows that, again, we are utilizing our capacity to move the number of people who have either the income or the wealth, the savings, or the um, the accessibility to cross borders due to the increasing um, you know, sort of uh, uh, acceptability of their passports, all of those things have steadily, steadily increased. And so the, generally speaking, even going back well over a century, if you look at you know, correlate rising incomes to migration, you find that they are directly correlated. So the wealthier the world gets, the more likely it is that people will vote with their feet. Yeah. And it, and it seems to me that that, that, that foot traffic, that, that migration, seems to be influenced by the stress of where they are. Uh, and there are lots of different stressors, including COVID. Uh, but uh, I, I'm reminded of, of Bertolt Brecht's quote, which I'm going to misquote here, but something along the lines of, if things cannot stand the way they are, they won't. That, that we migrate quite often in response to negative stimuli, uh, even if that negative stimuli is a lockdown and, uh, and COVID. Uh, we certainly saw a lot of internal migration in the United States over the last two years uh, accelerating as well. What are the stimuli that are pushing people around? Well, you know, by the way, it's an interesting point about domestic migration, because the definition of migration is not that you have to cross a border, right? And so there are far more domestic migrants and domestic relocations than there are international. And one of the things I point out early in the book is that if you only focused on international migration, you'd be missing the greatest mass migration of the past 40 years, which is simply from rural China to urban China from interior China to coastal China. Now, those hundreds of millions of people never left a country, but their material circumstances were radically altered. Um, and of course, it shaped, reshaped the entire world economy as a result. So we should definitely not be discounting the domestic uh, relocations. And in the United States, at least for the first half of COVID, that picked up very quickly. And as you know, from the data tapered a bit and has tapered a bit and certainly will now with rising interest rates and so on. Um, but in terms of the big drivers, so the, the shift of people from red zones to green zones, right? You know, sort of you know, the COVID hotspots to places where one would feel safer. And whether, again, that's Americans just saying, hey, I don't wanna be in a dense urban place, let's go to the great outdoors and suburbia. That's one example. But it's also, of course, kind of people who, as soon as restrictions ease, said, my country handled COVID terribly, get me out of here, right? I wanna be in a place with better medical care and, you know, obviously better availability of vaccines and so forth. And but we can't even look at that in isolation because, as you know, the COVID crisis also gave rise to and unleashed an economic crisis, of course. So people uh, felt that they would be trapped in underperforming economies that were cut off from global supply chains and so forth. And as soon as they could get a plane ticket out, 
they did, right? So there's the economic dimensions of it. And there are people who didn't see their families for a long time. And they said, you know, I can't bear to be so far away from uh, you know, my country of origin or where my family is, I'm just gonna move and be there so that in the event of any subsequent lockdown, we're all together. Um, and then of course there's climate change because as you may also remember from the early months of COVID, when the skies started to clear in some places and emissions went down temporarily as industrial activity was stifled, you heard some people say, hmm, maybe COVID lockdowns are the solution to climate change. And of course, that was a wildly optimistic uh, assumption to be making because it didn't last very long. And of course, you know, climate change continues more or less unabated. So what you have is not just one force that, you know, uh, provokes people to want to move and resettle and relocate. You have seven or eight forces all at the same time and all really operating in overdrive. Again, climate change economic dislocation, technological disruption, the demographic imbalances between old and young that compel countries to need to import more young workers. And of course, let's not forget political violence and upheaval. And I cannot think of a time, Gunnar, and, and maybe you can, but I cannot remember a time in, in any uh, in recent decades um, where simultaneously around the world, there were seven or eight um, geopolitical hotspots that have, um, you know, been the source or origin of more than a million refugees and asylum seekers at the same time. The Rohingya of Myanmar, the, the refugees out of Afghanistan, the collapse of Yemen, uh, of course now Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, Venezuela, and so on and so on. So it's, and of course Syria. Right. So simultaneously around the world, unrelated to each other, you have a half dozen or more really major meltdowns, right? Total state failures and collapse. And that is another thing. And, and again, the COVID lockdown is literally just a blip compared to climate change and political uh, crises and, and labor imbalances and so on and so forth. So ultimately, the force of migration, the need for mobility, the need to correct for the mismatch between supply and demand, in a way, will overwhelm any lockdown. You know, part of the problem, I think, when we talk about these sorts of things is we keep looking for maybe a one or two dimensional uh, kind of model where one force is applied and we see a reaction and we can then plan accordingly. But but we have the struggle of a, of a, to your point, a seven-dimensional model um, where all these forces perhaps are even in opposition to each other as we try to figure out what's going to happen and, and where it's going. But I, I want to go back a little bit to, to something you said, which was that, that COVID was a blip. Um, and certainly in terms of time, certainly in terms of how much change it, 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 it actually occurred, perhaps you could see it as a blip. But it seems like it opened up people's minds to some of the other issues. Do you think there's been a shift in thinking around kind of these forces uh, that are impacting us? I think that some of that was already underway. You know, if you think about ESG and governance or wanting to revise metrics around, you know, away from just straight GDP towards quality of life, you know, this holistic accounting. A lot of that was certainly underway. Obviously, the need, the recognition of high inequality and the fact that you know, disruptions like this have a disproportionate impact on those that cannot be you know, digital workers and live anywhere, people in the, in, in, uh, the frontline workers, 
um, in essential services and in generally non-tradable services, you know, sectors of the economy who are vulnerable. So I think there was definitely momentum towards recognizing all of those issues and COVID and again, the, the, um, the, the, the tremendous impact, the mostly negative impact, of course, that it had on household welfare is just part of that broader awakening that I, you know, would like to think more and more people are sort of, uh, you know, sort of experiencing now at a systemic level and at a community level. And that, that's certainly a positive thing. So, but all of that, whatever examples we choose to cite, are broad, are, are broadly part of the same human tendency, which is the search for stability. Right, we have a fight or flight instinct. Right, that is that is what we are endowed with um, biologically and psychologically, and that's what people follow. And people follow that whether the stimulus is a political one or an epidemiological one or a climatological one. And that's what I'm trying to model and say: Look, you know, at, at some point, people throw in the towel, right? And whatever the stimulus is, and when they do, where do they go? And you could start to map that out geographically based upon historical patterns, based upon diaspora networks, uh, based upon changing visa and immigration policies, based upon the, the skill sets that some countries have and other countries need. And if you do do all of that layering, you come up with some, I think, fairly robust forecasts about where people are leaving and where they're going to wind up. Now, in terms of where people are leaving and where they ended up, um, I think it's interesting that that it's not necessarily one direction, right? That, that it moves back and forth, perhaps to a certain extent. There's been a steady migration over the last 20 years from the North to the South in the United States. Um, but there are things to suggest that that could reverse. There's also been uh, a movement away from the cities, especially in the last couple of years, but it's, a lot of it's demographic, where the, the top markets for institutional investors are no longer those large gateway cities like New York that instead they're focusing more on things like Austin or Nashville or Atlanta as, as great cities to invest in because of the number of young people and, and skilled young people that are going into those, those cities. Now, could that change? Uh, and could, could we see some reversal? Is, is it too soon to declare that New York is over or, or something along those lines? How do you see kind of the waxing and waning of migration? Now, these are two very important and interrelated points. One relates to the fact that, and this is the you know excellent research that, that William Frey at Brookings has done that shows that over the past century, uh, the populations of the South and West of the United States have gained significantly at the expense of the North and the Northeast. Climate models, however, tell us that, well, it's, of course, the North and the Northeast, the Great Lakes region and so forth that are uh, obviously more climate propitious. And so in many ways, Americans have been moving in the quote unquote wrong direction. But climate change has not been a motivating factor in our relocation decisions. It's had to do with seeking sunshine and low taxes, right? So from Rust Belt to Sun Belt. Will that change as climate change accelerates? Yes, there's no question. But to what degree and, you know, again, which pairs of origin and destination and again, what time scale, all of that is going to be quite incremental. And I do try to map some of that out. And and that, that, that leads us to the second part of your question, which is what are the new kind of, you know, hotspots, if you will, or popular destinations, the Zoom towns and so forth. And this is where there's, I think, a two-part answer. The first is, 
this COVID and the move away from, you know, some big cities does not mean the death of the city. And these are two different things. You know, a lot of people like to proclaim the death of the city. But, you know, you and I remember when this was uh, proclaimed after the financial crisis as well. But New York came back. But the, other, the deeper point is that New York is not all cities. The truth is that the city always wins. You know, if you were to go and back and look at more or less the 7,000 year history of human sort of, you know, traceable civilizations, you would say, well, from 7,000 years till today, the one clear winner has been the city, right? It's not always the same city and it's not always New York or Los Angeles, but the city always wins. When a person leaves Los Angeles or New York and moves to Austin, it is not the death of the city. It's a gain for one city at the expense of the other. And what I what I devoted a large portion of the book to doing is to kind of mapping out what are the new civilizational centers of the 21st century in light of all of these disruptions. You could you could in, as a shorthand say, well, what's the next New York? Right. In some ways, I'm showing what the future New Yorks are, if you will. So Los Angeles may be losing people, uh, but, you know, Calgary and Toronto are gaining people. Right. Um, Rome may be losing people. But Berlin is gaining people, right? The city always wins. We will continue to be an urban population, but which city wins is an open question. And that brings me to the to to uh, you know the direct answer in terms of American markets uh, to your question. So right now, sure, it's easy to pick um, you know winners just by reading the newspaper and saying, oh look, you know Denver is where it's at, and you know, Raleigh is where it's at and Austin and Seattle and so forth. And, you know, Boise, Idaho can do no wrong. You know, everyone go buy a house there. But that's not necessarily indicative of the longer term resorting of the, the American population, because each of these places may not necessarily emerge as a long term stronghold. They each of them, you know, has some of their own climate difficulties. Uh, they may not um, have the supportive political environment, tax structure, uh, you know, building permitting, uh, lots and lots of other variables that go into a place being really resilient over the long term. I do have confidence in some of these places, but not necessarily in all of them. But the but what's interesting is again going back to 2020 and the large number of relocations that took place. It's a reminder that we are mobile. My point fundamentally in the arc of the story was not to pick just winners, right, and say, this is where people will go. I mean, I try to do that. But the broader point was, was to emphasize our capacity for mobility when we're responding to crisis and complexity. We can do it. Whether the crisis is that your country was invaded by Russia or China, or the crisis is COVID, or the crisis is rising sea levels, whatever it is, we have that capacity to embrace mobility, to relocate, and that we will be better off if we are open to that again, rather than remaining sedentary. And so, you know, we, America is a very, very large country. And one of the things that's always kind of bothered me about the whole climate adaptation discourse is that everyone talks about, you know, the future of climate change um, as if it's, you know, we're all in Miami. But we're not all in Miami, right? Uh, you know, America is going to be fine. The American population is going to be fine. But I am advocating for a proactive, you could almost say preemptive, 
uh, strategy of relocation. And if you'll just indulge me for a minute, I mean, you know, we get our sequencing wrong, right? We do our infrastructure planning um, based upon, you know, kind of our port barrel legislative process with everyone fighting to direct resources into their particular geographies without reference to climate models and, um, and economic activity. Instead, what I would do is now you can't avoid letting the climate models, you know, shape first and foremost what you think of as habitable geographies in terms of their temperature suitability, their ground, groundwater supply, and so forth. So lead with the climate models, then start to nudge and incentivize immigration uh, through obviously housing policy, um, through mortgage mortgage rates, insurance uh, rates, and so forth, and then think about the long-term infrastructure investment and commit it in an overweight fashion towards those locations that are the most climate resilient. And that, again, as you know, Gunnar, is not how we do things because that would be way too rational and way too pragmatic. But I come and, out and, and very, yet, despite yeah. our best <laughs> efforts, despite our best efforts, to the contrary, I, I, I love this idea and almost this mantra that we should perhaps adopt. The city always wins, but the geography maybe not so much. Exactly. And ultimately, you know, my field, at least in, for the purposes of this book, is human geography, right? Which is, of course, you know, the location of us. And so there are plenty of geographies available, whether it's in the United States or globally, for the 8 billion, soon to be 9 billion people of the world. We all should, you know, have a reasonable place to be, but that requires rethinking our spatial organization, right? Our uh, spatial planning and, of course, our political organization and so forth. And that's what the kind of theoretical, if you will, underpinning of the whole story is. A lot of what I was struck by in terms of uh, policy and immigration is how some countries are shifting their thinking around immigration from a kind of xenophobic negative, keep everyone out to something that's a little bit more welcoming. And they're seeing benefit from that. Can you talk a little bit about that shift in terms of understanding about immigration? Yes. And I think this is such a significant point, Gunnar, because, you know, I think there's a Twitter view of the world and then there's reality. And fortunately, reality is uh, far better, you know, and, and more authentic and uh, relatable and positive story. So the, the Twitter worldview is that populism, xenophobia, borders, uh, you know, and protectionism have swept the planet and dictate all of our political affairs and our cultural life and outlook on the future. Um, reality tells you that, well, you know, Donald Trump isn't president of the United States anymore. And this year, Congress forecasts that potentially up to a million new migrants will settle in the United States, which brings us back to the kind of big time numbers of the 90s and 2000s, which is really remarkable. So going from, you know, 230, 240,000 at a low, jumping to a million the next year is something that, again, only America can do, right? And that's, that's uh, that, again, that's the reality. Secondly, Canada, right, our neighbor to the north is pound for pound the single most generous uh, immigration country in the entire world. They have one-tenth our population, but are increasing their population by 1% every year, which means they're taking in 400,000 people a year. Now, you've just had, uh, despite Germany bringing in um, you know, more than a million uh, Syrian migrants during 2015 to 2016. There was a brief political backlash against that. 
But again, look at their most recent election. You have a center-left government that's pro-immigration. Um, and then look at Brexit, right? I mean, today it is easier to migrate to the UK than it was before Brexit um, because they realize the folly of their ways. Uh, they've suffered labor shortages in the, in the healthcare sector, in uh, agriculture, in truck for truck drivers, everything. So the most important countries in the world, let's not, let's not forget Japan either. We, we tend to think of Japan as this isolated insular civilization, but there've never been three million foreigners living in Japan the way they are right now. And Japan is opening the floodgates to anyone and everyone practically who wants to go and live there, um, given their very low fertility and labor shortages. So the reality gonna, I mean, you know, I'm not making things up. The fact is we continue to live in a world of mass migration, uh, you know, per, uh, not necessarily more than ever, but very, very significant. And the leading societies in the world, the ones that are role models. And I'm not talking about Hungary here. I'm talking about America. I'm talking about Canada. I'm talking about Germany. I'm talking about Britain. You know, the most important, significant countries in the world are, have not let up on being mass migration destinations. So let's be absolutely clear that the Twitter worldview completely falls apart. And I think that's obviously a good thing. And let's remember, this is very good for American real estate. Why? Let's bring it back to your previous point. Now, all you have to do is look at, um, you know, over the last, well, you could go back literally uh, 250 years if you want to, but certainly over the last 40 or 50 years, which states have gained the largest percentage of new migrants each year that come to the United States. Surprise, it's New York and California. Which two states have been losing the most people uh, in absolute numbers over the last uh, decade? Well, it's New York and California at, at a time when migration has been trending down. Now that migration is trending back up, guess which states are gonna benefit not a moment too soon from Biden coming into office and the new immigration wave? it's going to be the states that actually, you know, uh, it's going to be New York and California. So I think that, uh, you know, we, there's a direct relationship here, obviously, between high immigration and the revival of uh, certain property markets. And it obviously won't be just New York and California, because along the way, America continues to get more and more diverse. And therefore, each new migrant, you know, has a higher likelihood of knowing someone or being related to someone who's already here. And therefore, the that, that is why even as the most recent census demonstrated very absolutely categorically, the October 2021 census uh, report, that even during the Trump administration, America became, you know, more diverse, more mixed race, uh, certainly more Latino, more Asian. That continued unabated even during uh, the Trump administration. So just look county by county by county and you see more and more diversity. Um, so that's going to continue again. It's de demonstrably positive for property markets. We know this from the post-financial crisis immigration waves and the role that they played in a number of states. And that's going to happen again. And we should be obviously very grateful for that. This is the end of part one of my interview with uh, Parag Khanna, the founder of FutureMap and best-selling author of the book Move. Make sure to listen in to the second part of this interview where Parag will discuss his new AI platform that is revealing important information on migration, climate, and markets over the next two decades.
You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.